Well, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I do encourage you to open it to John chapter 16. Uh, we have spent many weeks now exploring uh, what we refer to as Jesus' farewell Discourse. Really, um, everything that happened from about the middle of John chapter 13 up until the end of John chapter 16 is part of Jesus' farewell discourse. I mean, we can include chapter 17 as well, but chapter 17 is really Jesus' prayer for his disciples and his prayer for us. Today, we're concluding the sort of instruction part of Jesus' farewell discourse, and we're going to do that by looking at verses 25 to 33 of John chapter 16. I'm simply going to read it for you now. It says this. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and am going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world." So I did my best just to keep my outline as simple as possible today. There are two main things that we ought to take away from this passage. And we could summarize those things by saying that that Jesus teaches us truth and Jesus promises us peace. Now we're going to get into the specifics of what kind of truth it is that Jesus teaches us. And what kind of peace it is that he promises us. So let's just start with the first of those observations. Jesus teaches us plain truth. Now, that might seem like a bit of a strange point to make that he teaches us plain truth in light of the fact that up until this point... The disciples have kind of been in the dark about what Jesus is saying. They have been confused by what he is saying because he has been speaking in figures of speech. We saw last week. They were puzzled by the fact that Jesus said, a little while you will see me no longer and again a little while and you will see me. But now they say, finally, finally, Jesus, we understand you because you are speaking plainly. And we'll get into the specifics of how Jesus speaks plainly here and what that means. But I think it's first, it's just good to remind ourselves that that what we often need most is someone who will just speak the plain truth to us. Uh, most of us don't read newspapers anymore. We, we have other sources that we go to for uh, the news that we want to consume. But there was a day not that long ago where newspapers were, were the most common and maybe the most trusted source to get our news from. 
And most cities had local newspapers like the Vancouver Sun or the Vancouver Province. Uh, you had national newspapers like here in Canada, the Globe and Mail. In the States, maybe the New York Times or in, in, uh, in England, the Sun, something like that. Pretty boring names, to be honest with you. My favorite name for a regional newspaper is the one that is found in the city of Cleveland, Ohio. And the name for their regional newspaper is the Cleveland Plain Dealer. I I love that name, the Cleveland Plain Dealer. In other words, they're not giving you a lot of spin. They're not giving you a lot of hype. They're just giving you the plain facts, just the news. And we need more of that in our day, just the unvarnished plain truth. And what we see in this passage is that Jesus teaches us the plain truth truth. And we see that in three areas. Firstly, he teaches us the plain truth about the future. Now I'm kind of reverse engineering this a little bit. So we're going to read verse 33, the last verse in our passage. We'll come back to it later. But verse 33, Jesus says this, I have said these things to you that in me, in me, you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation But take heart, I have overcome the world. Notice again what it says. In this world, you will have good physical health. In this world, you will have financial prosperity. In this world, you'll be spared from all of the trouble that comes to everyone else. Right? That is not what it says. What Jesus says is, in this world, you will. Have tribulation. Do you know what the prosperity preachers get wrong? I mean, they get most things wrong. But do you know what they actually get wrong? They get the timing wrong. Because in fact, when we are raised in our resurrection bodies, we will be raised in bodies that have no physical defects. We'll experience perfect health. We will not be in need of anything. There will no longer be sorrow or sickness. But in this world, Jesus says, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. Now, the tribulation that we can expect and should expect uh, might come in lots of different forms. It might come about... As a result of our commitment to follow Jesus. We looked at that a couple of weeks back. Where Jesus said if you were of the world. The world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world. But but I chose you out of the world. Therefore the world hates you. And sometimes the trouble or the tribulation that we might experience. Might come about as a result of our commitment to follow Jesus. That was what the disciples were in store for. But that's really just part of the kind of tribulation that we might expect in this world. We live in a world that is filled with trouble. There are the large-scale troubles that that come along with just simply living in this world. Things like earthquakes, famines, and wars. And then there are the personal trials and tribulations that we experience. So elsewhere in the New Testament, James will tell us, well, consider it pure joy, my brothers, or my brothers and sisters, when you encounter Various trials. Or Peter will tell us that there is a grief that comes because we experience various trials or various tribulations. 
Now, the word that Jesus uses here for tribulation can refer to lots of different kinds of trouble. And many of you know the reality of what Jesus says here when he says, in this world, you will have trouble. And some of you may feel like you're experiencing tribulation or trouble right now. There's no shortage of trouble in this world. So you might have experience with physical trouble. You or someone close to you might be dealing with a debilitating disease. I mean, your everyday existence is marked by physical pain and suffering, limitations. Or you might have experienced with loss. Maybe your spouse or someone close to you has died and you just deal with the the pain, the trouble that that causes you, the grief. You're constantly reminded of what was taken away from you. Or you might be experiencing the the pain of estranged relationships. Or maybe you've been betrayed. And those types of trouble can be equally as painful as the physical kinds of trouble that we face. Jesus tells us, in this world, you will have trouble. And he tells us this so that we are not surprised when it comes. But we still get surprised by this, don't we? I mean, he tells us in this world, you'll have trouble or in this world, you'll have tribulation. And then that trouble or tribulation comes and we are surprised. And maybe it's because that trouble or tribulation is harder than we expected it would be. And I I liken this a little bit to what happens on an airplane. And, you know, you get on the plane and you reach your cruising altitude and the pilot will come on and he will make an announcement. He'll say something like, you know, we're going to be cruising at 30,000 feet. Our flight will take about, you know, five hours and there will be a little bit of tribulation along the way, right? He's telling us, so we're ready for it. And most of us just ignore that. And then that turbulence comes and we're like, oh, wait, wait a minute. I didn't know it was going to be like this. I mean, sometimes, you know, there's just a little bit of it, but I know there's been a couple of times in my life where I have flown and that turbulence is like the kind where drinks are spilling and, you know, you're just sort of white knuckling it. I I know he said there was going to be turbulence, but I didn't know it would be like this. And that's how it is for many of us. Jesus says in this world, you will have tribulation. And then that tribulation comes and we go, wait a minute. I didn't know you meant that. Jesus teaches us plainly about the future. He teaches us that in this world, we can expect tribulation and trouble. But Jesus also teaches us plainly about the Father. Now that takes us back to the beginning of our passage in verse 25. Jesus says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Now, Andy covered some of this ground uh, last week. The disciples, again, they couldn't make heads or tails of what Jesus meant when he said, in a little while, you'll see me no longer. And then after a little while, you'll see me again. And the disciples were often confused by Jesus' teaching. We just read through the Gospel of John. You'll find many points along the way where they're like, what what is he talking about? All right, so back in chapter 11. We read this, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciple said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. 
Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Okay, so sometimes Jesus has to spell the truth out in the simplest of terms in order for them to understand. But since that's the case, we might wonder, why doesn't Jesus just spell it out in the simplest of terms from the very beginning? Why, doesn't he, why didn't he just tell them from day one, look, I'm going to be crucified. Then three days later, I'm going to rise again. I'm going to ascend into heaven. Everything is going to be looked after. Well, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Jesus had already stated two of them in this chapter. If we just back up a little bit, if, if you back up and you look at verse four of chapter 16, you'll see that it says this. At least the second half of that verse says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. So Jesus was there not just to tell them about the father, but in fact to show them what the father was like. That was the nature of his discussion with Philip back in chapter 14. Philip says, look, Jesus, just show us the father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus says, Have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still don't understand? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I have come to reveal the Father to you. to Not just to tell you what he's like, but to show you what he's like. But another reason Jesus didn't make it plain from the beginning is because they weren't ready. So look back now at verse 12. Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. You can't handle them. You can't understand them. The disciples were not ready to bear the full truth of what Jesus had to say. And you can see that by the reaction they had to the announcement of his departure when he says he's going away. And in all honesty, I think we ought to take some encouragement from this. Jesus is patient with us. You know, the moment we place our faith in Christ, we become a new creation. But we don't instantly become a fully formed follower of Jesus. And we aren't instantly experts in all the doctrines of the Christian faith. We don't understand everything. So I, I took some golf lessons this, uh, this past summer. I've played golf Uh, on and off for uh, many years. And most of those years have played really terrible golf. So I finally decided, you know, this was the year I was going to take some some golf lessons. And I showed up on the very first day of those lessons and uh, had this great instructor, this South African guy over here at Northview. And and, uh, he did a video analysis of my swing and then he gave me some feedback. And he started off with the positives, Right. He said, you know, Lee, you've got good hand-eye coordination. You've got maybe some natural athletic ability. That's why you can make good contact with the ball. That was it for positives, okay? And I think he was probably reaching for that. (laughs) And then he said, you know, he started to give me the feedback, right? He goes, you know, actually, your grip, like you grip the golf club incorrectly. And you're standing too far away from the golf ball. And your alignment is off. You're actually aimed in the wrong place. And you shift your lower body when you go into the backswing and you tend to bend your left arm as you're taking your backswing. And then you don't shift your weight to your front foot in your downswing. And I'm like, great. So everything except the way I grip the ball, the way I stand before the ball, the way I swing back and the way I hit everything else is fine. 
And I think he could see, I was a little bit overwhelmed by, you know, all of that information. And so he said, don't worry, Lee. We're going to work at this one thing at a time. That's what a good teacher does. That's what Jesus was doing with his disciples, right? I'm not going to tell you more than you're ready for. Now, this is not an excuse to remain infants in our understanding of God's word and God's ways. But it takes time to grow in your understanding of the Trinity, for instance. Now, that really all just has to do with how Jesus teaches us about the Father. But what about what he teaches us about the Father? And there are two main things he teaches us about the Father here. The first one is that we now have direct access to the Father. Uh, Verse 26 says this. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Right? You're going to go directly to the Father and ask him. Jesus says he will no longer ask the Father on our behalf. We will be able to ask the Father directly. Now, this doesn't in any way take away from the fact that Jesus is our advocate, that he intercedes with the Father on our behalf. I mean, all of John 17 is Jesus' prayer for his disciples and his prayer for us. William Hendrickson paraphrases what Jesus says here like this. And I do not say to you that I shall continue to regard you like small children who are not yet able to pray so that someone has to pray for them. On the contrary, in this new era, you yourselves will pray to the Father and he will hear you. So when our kids were younger, we used to, you know, tuck them in at night. And part of that process was to to pray with them and pray for them. Sometimes I would break out in song, that, that kind of thing. And sometimes those, we had kind of extended prayer sessions, I think because they didn't want to go to bed yet. But lots of you are in that stage right now. You've got young kids, and when you put them to bed, you, you pray with them or pray for them. And you may have had this experience where while you're doing that, you say, well, let's pray. And they say, oh, well, you pray, Daddy. Or you pray, Mommy. And one of the good things you can do when your children say that, is, you know what, I'll pray first, and then you pray after me, right? You're you're teaching them to pray, not just your prayers, but to pray their own prayers directly to the Father. That's what Jesus was doing for his disciples here. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Jesus is guiding us into this. Now, we covered some of what it means to pray in Jesus' name last week, but I think it's worth just looking at this gift that Jesus gives us here in more detail. I would say that Jesus gifts us both personal and powerful prayer. So let's just start with the personal part. He grants us this direct access to God. He tells us we He no longer will ask on our behalf. We will go directly to the Father in his name. So what does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? I mean, is it, is it just a formula? We tack on the end of our prayers, right? We've got to make sure at the very end, we say, in Jesus' name, amen. Is that, is that what it means? Your food really isn't blessed until you say that? 
I was stuck uh, in the Denver airport for 14 hours this past November. I was down there at a conference, and flight got canceled and, and had to wait around. Finally got us on a, on a flight uh, later in the evening. And, you know, after waiting a long time, you're a little bit impatient. And we were then seated on the plane for like 45 minutes and just kind of finally waiting for this thing. I was traveling with my cousin. I was on this window seat, had two kids next to me, and then he was across the aisle, and I said something to him like, man, can we back up already? And one of these kids piped up, and he said, in Jesus' name. <laughs> and then he said, hey, you know, this is something I always, I always say. He's like, when I, these boys are traveling on their own. They're like grade three, grade five. And he's like, you know, when I'm driving with my parents, and I'm in the back seat, and I want the light to change from red to green, I just say, in Jesus' name. So we had this great conversation, but I'm like, is that what this means? I mean, to pray in Jesus' name? I've been trying it around the lower mainland. Like, it, it, sometimes it works. Um, I think we know. That's not, <laughs> it's not a magic formula, right? Pray in Jesus' name. So what does it mean then to pray in Jesus' name? Well, maybe the question we need to ask before that one is, what does it mean to do anything in Jesus' name? And in short, I think what it means is that we do what we do in his power and we do what we do for his glory. So in Acts chapter 3, we read this. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. So when Peter heals this man, he says that he does it in the power or the authority of Jesus' name. That's part of what it means. We enter the presence of God by the authority Jesus has given us. It's the authority part. Colossians 3.17 then says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's the for his glory part, right? That's how it is when we pray. We pray in the power or the authority that Jesus has given us or gifted us, and we pray in such a way that he might be glorified. That's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. The second thing Jesus teaches us about the Father is that he loves us. And we need to hear this. Look again at verse 27. Jesus says, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. The Father himself loves you. And sometimes we just need to stew in that. Just to be reminded that our heavenly Father Loves us. I mean, sometimes we view God as though he is a disappointed father, right? Like he's just kind of always shaking his head at us. I, I don't want my kids thinking like that, of me like that, right? I hope the thing they will know about me above all else is that I love them. And if you haven't stopped to reflect on this for a while, you ought to do yourself a favor and just be reminded of how much your heavenly father loves you. I want you just to hear what God's word says to you. 1 John chapter 3, see or behold what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Do you see it? Are you beholding it? Do you marvel in it? 
Do you understand how amazing it is that your heavenly father loves you so much that he's invited you to be part of his family? In Ephesians chapter 2, we read this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Why is it that we are saved? Well, it is because of the great love with which he loved us. And we all know John 3.16, and we sang this this morning, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is how much God loves us. The father himself loves you. Now, specifically, what Jesus says is, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Now, we we might wonder about that. I mean, how does that square with 1 John 4.10, where it says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I mean, the New Testament is crystal clear that God's love for us preceded our love for him. So how do we understand this? Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from him. Augustine explained it this way. He said, he would not have wrought in us something he could love were it not that he loved us before he wrought it. I'm sure that makes it crystal clear to you. Basically what Augustine was saying and what the New Testament makes clear is that the love of God for us comes before and after our love for him. God has produced this. He has caused us to love him, to believe in his name. So Jesus teaches us plainly about the future. He teaches us plainly about the Father. A third thing we can see here is that he teaches us the truth about ourselves. So the disciples not only hear what Jesus is saying, but they finally understand. Right, listen again to verses 29 and 30. And there it says, his disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Right, they finally get it. And then Jesus says this in verses 31 and 32. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. And will leave me alone, yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. So the disciples think they've arrived. Look, now we get it. And Jesus says, not so fast. Uh, Matthew gives us a little more detail about what Jesus said to his disciples on that night. Matthew 26, it says, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That is what happened. Jesus loves his disciples, but he knows that they are not as strong as they think they are. Someone has said that the worth of a soldier is never known in a time of peace. Right? The worth of a soldier is never known in a time of peace. Just think about that. You can be trained in all the right methodologies. You can be equipped with the best equipment. 
But it's only when the battle begins that you actually know the true worth of a soldier. Jesus knew exactly what was in store for his disciples that night. He knew that the moment he was taken, they would scatter. He knew that their confident assertions about what they would and wouldn't do would turn to dust. And this is not the only time we encounter something like this. Back in chapter 13, we looked at this exchange between Jesus and Peter. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Now, I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I'm just trying to be realistic. One of the mantras of our age is, you got this. And I think it's important for us to to understand, we don't got this. We're not invincible. We are not above temptation. We should take heed of the warning that Paul gives in the book of Galatians when he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then he says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. See, the danger Paul is warning us about is the same danger Jesus was warning his disciples about. It's the danger of overconfidence. And we should understand this about ourselves. Sometimes, you know, those things that we so confidently declare on a Sunday morning, we sing them out. We shrink back from the rest of the week. So we ought to remember the truth about ourselves, our frailty, our fickleness. So Jesus teaches us the plain truth. Second thing we see here is that Jesus promises us true peace. So now we come again to verse 33. I've said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus promises us peace. Now that sounds nice and all, but what what does it really mean? Well, I think we can answer that question... By really asking three questions about this peace. The first is, where do we get this peace? Well, the answer is that we get this peace or we experience this peace in the midst of the tribulation or in the midst of the troubles. And I point this out because sometimes we think that we only experience peace in tranquil settings. Like I need to get to a cabin on the lake before I can you know, really experience the peace of God. Siri doesn't know what it means. But there's an Old Testament promise that lots of people claim as their own. It's one that is found in Jeremiah chapter 29. That verse says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now that's a great promise, right? It's the kind of promise we like to take and we like to frame it and hang it on our walls. And what we usually do, I looked around. I found a bunch of images. I sent those to Andy. It didn't make it on the screen apparently. But it's usually like a tranquil setting. There's like still water. There's, oh, something like this, right? Beautiful picture of peace, isn't it? That's what comes to mind when we think about this promise. 
The only problem with that is that it causes us to forget the actual context of Jeremiah 29. Just a few verses before that treasured promise, we read these words. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, right? They're living in Babylon. It's not a tranquil setting. And if we were to be a little more accurate in our framing of Jeremiah 29, 11, we would probably need a picture of the ancient city of Babylon with all of its pagan temples scattered about. Maybe there'd be a a murder or a mugging scene in one corner of that picture. Maybe there'd be a few uh, prostitutes milling about in the other corner of it. I, I don't know why they don't ask me to produce scriptural art. But the point is that the the peace Jesus is promising is not the peace that we can only experience in idyllic settings. The peace that he promises is a peace that we experience in a world where we have trouble. That's what makes it so great. So the second question we ought to ask is the how question. Well, how do we get this peace? Well, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. The only way to experience this peace is to be in Christ. This is what Jesus has been telling his disciples all through this farewell discourse. Remember back in chapter 15 when he said, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in In me, you cannot experience this kind of peace unless you are in Christ. Now, I've waxed on before about my love of the word but, right? It's this small word that often communicates so much. I feel the same way about the word in. Jesus tells us we can only find this kind of peace in him. And if there is a single description that describes our our state as Christians, it is the phrase, in Christ, or in him. That's the most important thing that can be said about us. As a matter of fact, this is the most common description of Christians in the New Testament. The phrase, in Christ, or in him, or in the Lord, appear 216 times in the letters of Paul alone. So whatever else might be said about us, the most determinative thing is whether or not we are in Christ. Listen to these words from Sam Storms. He's just explaining what it means when Paul writes to the Colossians and describes them as being both in Colossae and also in Christ. And he says this, no matter where you are geographically and physically... What you are spiritually will never change. You may be at work or at play, overseas, under the weather, out of money, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. You may be down in the dumps or over the hill or beside yourself, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. You may be at paradise or at prison or at the movies or in Chicago, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. That is what is true of Christians. You are in Christ. So how do we experience the peace that Jesus promises? Well, we cannot experience unless we are in Christ. I've said it to you this way before. You cannot know the peace of God 
unless you know the God of peace. So if you want to experience this peace, you have to be in Christ. You have to place your faith in him. You have to abide in him. Third question we should ask about this peace is the why question. Why can we have peace in the midst of a world filled with trouble? Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, our our time is short, so I'm just going to, I just want you to notice Jesus puts this in the past tense. I have overcome the world. Now, his resurrection hadn't happened yet, but his victory was assured. And since Jesus has overcome the world, we ought to live like that is true. Our circumstances, therefore, are not the thing that determines how we live. What determines how we live is the fact that Jesus has overcome the world. And what he says to us is, take courage or be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Here's how Paul describes how we ought to live in light of Jesus' victory. And I'll just close with this. In Romans 8, he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, today we just thank you for this reminder that we can expect and should expect that as long as we live in this world, we will have trouble, we will have tribulation, we will experience all manner of trials. But God, that does not cause us to fear or to shrink back because Jesus has overcome the world. And we pray that as his followers, Lord, we would experience the peace that he gives And we would understand, we would be of good cheer because he has overcome the world. We pray in his name. Amen.